It's February, and along with chalky candy hearts and overpriced flowers and an overabundance of chocolate, we once again have our seasonal episode of Ocean Lovin', covering cool and strange ways ocean creatures make little ocean creatures. As with every year, we want to remind our listeners that Ocean Lovin' episodes cover adult themes, not meant for children without supervision. Please listen to the episode before sharing it with youngsters. Also, I have to mention that this episode in particular covers a topic close to my heart. D&D character creation? I don't make that many characters. How many do you have in your D&D Beyond? I plead the fifth. <laughs> so what's the topic? Uh, sharks! Specifically, rarely observed reproductive strategy that females can do on their own. Learn more on this episode of Ocean, Ocean Science, Science Radio. Radio. Welcome back to Ocean Science Radio, the podcast that brings you the latest, greatest, and sometimes deepest stories in the ocean. I'm climate and ocean communication specialist Andrew Kornblatt. And I'm aquanaut, shark ecologist, and aspiring badass Dr. Francis Farabaugh. And as always, we are joined by a special guest, Dr. Skylar Bear. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Skylar Bear, a marine ecologist with expertise in shellfish population dynamics, invertebrate life history, fertilization ecology, and science communication. I also work as a marine habitat resource specialist in the NOAA Fisheries Alaska Regional Office. Welcome back, Skylar! Listeners will remember that we recently highlighted a book that Skylar worked on as an editor and author called Uncharted. As a reminder, it's a collection of powerful first-person stories by current and former scientists with disabilities or chronic conditions. You should check it out. Skylar, want to tee up what we're talking about today? Sure. So today we are talking about parthenogenesis. In Greek, it means a virgin creation, but in practice, it is an asexual reproduction method in which a female can produce an embryo without fertilizing an egg with sperm. This episode specifically features a story about a pair of sharks in captivity. Let's introduce our special guest, Dr. Christine Dudgeon. My name is Dr. Christine Dudgeon, and I'm a senior research fellow at the University of Queensland and the University of the Sunshine Coast. Dr. Dudgeon's research focuses on the origins and maintenance of biodiversity, in particular with sharks and rays. I'm very interested in how new species and, and different groups of animals originated. Uh, so asking evolutionary questions and then addressing how those different types of groups and populations and species are maintained today. And for that, I use a range of tools, uh, including um, investigating movement ecology, population genetics, trophic ecology. So really, what are those drivers of movement or, or what are the things that prevent animals from moving and sharing their genes more widely. And like many marine biologists, including myself here, her fascination with her research subjects started rather early. Sure. Uh, well, I've been fascinated by by sharks and rays, well, particularly sharks, I would say, from when I was a teenager. I grew up inland, which uh, Surprisingly, many marine biologists are uh, landlocked as children and find the ocean to be a really fascinating place. And where I grew up in Canberra, which is uh, the capital of Australia, it's about two hours from the coast. And our nearest coastline is a very spectacular part of uh, 
southern New South Wales. And here we would have uh, things like um, big black stingrays, grey nurse sharks and wobbegongs, uh, our carpet sharks, that we would be able to go and see. And, and I just found them absolutely fascinating. This also, being a few decades ago, was still quite prime uh, time when people were very scared of sharks and they had a, a bad reputation, I think worse than that it is now. And my experience was not that. I, I thought that they were wonderful animals to see in the wild and I just was curious about learning more about them and uh, continued to do so. To really understand the subject of asexual reproduction in sharks, particularly this story, you need to know a little bit about the species we are talking about. Zebra sharks. Or, I, wait, I mean leopard sharks. Zebard sharks? Yes. So the species that we'll be talking more about, uh, you've called it a zebra shark, but in the parts of the world where this animal is found in the wild, we actually call it a leopard shark. So this is because the adult forms are spotty and that's what you mostly see. There is confusion in that space because there's another species known as leopard shark, which is only found in the eastern Pacific Ocean off the coast of Mexico and California. And that's a completely different type of species. So to distinguish between them, we've started referring to this one as the Indo-Pacific leopard shark, because it's also found in the Indian Ocean. So if I do say leopard shark, that's I'm talking about stegostoma, not triacus, which is the Californian species. That's just to, to clarify <laughs> The, the common name, uh, it is a bit of an issue for us because, as I said, where these animals do actually occur in the wild, people call them leopard sharks. The, the zebra shark name refers to the juvenile stripy form, and that mostly originates from animals in aquarium settings. Back to your question uh, regarding reproduction. So um, sharks have a whole range of reproduction, which is quite fascinating. There's not that many species. So in total for sharks and rays, there's only around 1,200 species. And so the fact that they've evolved many different strategies for reproduction is, is pretty fascinating. One of the big challenges for any ocean species in reproduction is that they need to find each other. And in the ocean, that can be a very big challenge. Many of these animals migrate long distances at different stages of their life, mostly when they're adults. The current scientific thinking is that they tend to have certain habitats that they go to, which facilitates social interaction for mating. Many of these animals have fairly predictable migratory pathways and locations that they'll come back to each year where they'll come across other conspecifics that they can mate with. So that's the first challenge is how do you find a partner in the wild? The second challenge is essentially how do you mate? In sharks, as we have covered in past Ocean Loving episodes, mating can be a little bit of a dangerous activity in itself at times. Think about it, lots of teeth, lots of rough skin, Lots of opportunity for things to go terribly wrong. Also, sharks and rays are different to bony fish in that they have internal sex, like us. The males have modified pelvic fins called claspers that essentially look like a penis-type organ that extends underneath the cloaca. You can see it in, in a mature male. They have two of them. And they use this to insert into the female's cloaca. So the, the cloaca is sort of one hole for everything. So reproduction, peeing and pooing. 
and so they have this internal sex. That's unlike bony fish that spawn and release their eggs and sperm into the water column. So to have sex, the male needs to position the female so that he can insert one of his claspers into her cloaca. He just uses one at a time. And that generally tends to involve some biting. So he will bite onto her fin or her body and to position her. And that's a little bit hazardous for uh, you know, the species with very big teeth. And so the females actually have developed very thick skin. Their skin around those areas is, is much thicker than you find in the males, which I think is an adaptation towards having being bitten for that activity. So more on that whole sharks love biting during mating thing. The leopard sharks are a little bit different and they, they still do this. However, one of the ways that the males restrain the female is biting them at the very, very end of the tail. And leopard sharks have a very long tail. So that's the second longest tail to body uh, ratio after the thresher shark. The thought behind this, the theory of why they have this is that when they're little and they're stripy, when they swim, they actually look like sea snakes. And we think they might be mimicking sea snakes in those juvenile forms. And they just sort of maintain that tail even as they get larger and probably more camouflage to sand. But the interesting thing with this mating strategy, so you'll see a, a male will swim up, bite the very, very end of the tail of the female, and she goes all floppy, and he can then maneuver her to have sex. Scientists like Dr. Dudjon and her team will use that knowledge to trick these sharks into being caught for research purposes. Just back in December, we were doing some work where we're catching leopard sharks to insert some acoustic tagging and take blood samples for reproductive studies, etc. So how we actually catch them where uh, we see them here in, in southern Queensland is uh, free diving. So one of our free divers will go down, grab the very end of the tail and just basically bring them up, drag them up to the surface. And they're incredibly compliant, very, very easygoing sharks until they get to the surface and they realize that they've been caught. So at that point, somebody else needs to sort of restrain them a little bit while we while we get them into a harness at the side of the boat. But it's uh, something that we've been able to uh, utilize for our field work as well. The next bit in development and reproduction is, get ready for it, baby sharks. Do, 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 do. No, don't even start. <laughs> Don't even start, Andrew. <laughs> so sharks have a range of different strategies for the development of the embryos. So the first one I'll talk about is the egg-laying sharks or the oviparous species, which is what our Indo-Pacific leopard shark or zebra shark falls under. So there are a, a range of sharks that do lay eggs and the skates, which are one of the groups of rays, also lays eggs as well. And with the eggs, this varies in number depending on the species, but well, some of them have a seasonal egg laying period. So they'll lay eggs over several weeks. And with a, the Indo-Pacific leopard shark, an individual might lay many dozens of eggs over a season. Some species there's more, some species there are less. So there's the egg laying strategy where, so that's an egg that's encased in a hard shell that's deposited into the ocean. The eggs come in a whole range of different beautiful patterns and structures, and you can tell different species by their egg shape. 
And some of them are corkscrew, like the Port Jackson shark or the horn sharks, and they wedge them into holes. Some of them have long tendrils, like the leopard shark has long tendril, which is sticky, and they use it to attach the egg to a coral or rock, some sort of structure. So there's different different strategies with the shape and the attachments of the eggs. Some of our listeners may be familiar with species of shark eggs by their fun common name, mermaid purses. Yes, that's right. So the mermaid purse, often referred to is a, the tip, uh, the shape of that one tends to be more flat and a little bit curved. And so a leopard shark egg is like that. Lots of bamboo shark eggs are like that. But indeed, that mermaid purse refers to shark egg cases and that are found after the embryos have hatched out um, and have left the egg case behind. So one of the things about egg-laying sharks is that the babies tend to be very small because they are nourished purely by the yolk inside the egg, much like a little chicken. Is, is nourished by that yolk. So the babies end up quite little uh, compared to the potential size of the adult. The egg strategy for nourishing the baby is used in what we call aplacental viviparity. Viviparity means live birth. Aplacental means without a placenta. In other words, these sharks have eggs, but they're not laid. They remain inside the parent without being fed by a placenta. The babies develop only from a yolk inside the egg, inside the mother. Once they have finished up all that yolk, they are born. So they'll come out live birth, but they're not nourished by the mother. They're only nourished from that yolk. One really amazing example of this is the whale shark, the largest fish in the entire ocean. They once found this uh, female whale shark, um, and she had 300 embryos inside of her of differing stages of development and when they actually are ready to hatch they're they're incredibly little given that these animals are reaching up to 15 meters in total length as a you know fully fully grown animal probably more like 12 meters in total length but these um babies are you know 60 80 centimeters long so they're really tiny compared to what they'll turn into a couple more strategies of where the babies are actually nourished by more than just a yolk inside the mother. So things like manta rays, uh, they get a uterine milk that they drink as well. And so what this means is that those babies can get much, much larger than if they were just nourished by a yolk. On the other end of the spectrum is in manta and double rays, who only have one baby at a time, and these babies get big. So the mother might be four meters or five meters wingspan and the baby, the single embryo is is sort of wrapped up like a sushi roll inside the mother. And when it's born is around one meter in wingspan. So they have the potential to be much larger because they have this additional nutrients. And many of your larger sharks and rays do this compared to the smaller species. So they'll put more effort into developing bigger but fewer young than with the smaller species. Dr. Dudgeon mentions one last interesting strategy in shark reproduction, intrauterine cannibalism. Yep, cannibalism. They'll have babies, embryos developing in in each of their uterus, so there's two, and the largest one will eat its siblings. 
that are developing inside there as well. So they'll eat the eggs, developing embryos, but also if the embryo is a little bit bigger. So those species will have one or two absolute maximum offspring. And so they're well-developed offspring, but if you don't have many offspring, you also become a little bit more vulnerable um, to things like overfishing or other conservation concerns. All right. Now that we've covered some of the unusual and cool elements in shark reproduction, let's get back to the meat of the story. Our story really begins when there was a mommy and daughter shark in captivity and something happened. Dr. Dudgeon, can you tell that story? Certainly. So this is uh, the story of Leone the leopard shark from Townsville, North Queensland Aquarium. So this story starts with, I was working with the aquarium on, they had had quite a lot of baby leopard sharks. So they had a successful breeding pair. Leonie's the female and Leo was the male. And one of the things that we're interested in is examining how the body patterns change over time um, because they start off stripy, which is where the zebra shark name comes from and change to these spotted patterns in the adults. And we can use the patterns to follow individuals in the wild. So we want to know more about them. Because Leo and Leone were so good at mating, they decided to separate them. It's one thing to have, you know, 20, 30 centimetre long leopard sharks in captivity. It's quite another to have 20 two and a half meter size leopard sharks in captivity. So they really needed to stop them breeding. And however, uh, life finds a way, as uh, Dr. Malcolm from Jurassic Park nicely quoted. Nice, Jurassic Park reference. Perhaps Jeff Goldblum's best line in any movie in his entire career. Maybe we can get him to record that line for this episode, although that could be a stretch. Anyway... Dr. Dudgeon, please continue. So a couple of years later, something quite interesting happened, which was that uh, the eggs from Leone had some embryos developing in them. Now, much like a chicken, egg-laying sharks will still lay eggs, whether they're fertile or infertile. But mostly in these aquarium facilities, if they're not breeding the animals, they will just remove the eggs and dispose of them because the the eggs are, you know, they, they don't really want them. So at this stage in time, uh, what had happened was Leo and Leone were separated. Two years later, they started seeing some embryos in Leone's eggs and none of these survived. And then the next year, there were more eggs with embryos in them and some of them did survive. I was working with the aquarists and they asked me, what do you think is happening? And I said, well, I had read a study that had been done in uh, Dubai at the Burj Al Arab Aquarium by Dr. David Robinson, who's a dear friend of mine now, I didn't know him at the time, but he had documented parthenogenesis in their leopard shark who never had exposure to any males. So she had been captured from the wild as an immature animal and essentially had reproduced without any exposure to a a male leopard shark at all. Our situation was different because Leone and Leo had been together. And so one of the questions was, is it possible that this was sperm storage? 
We have covered the fact that many species of ocean animals, from octopuses to sharks, can actually store sperm from their mates and use them later when they want to reproduce. Oftentimes, this has been considered the reason that these sort of delayed births were occurring in human care. And an alternative explanation was parthenogenesis, or virgin birth. Because parthenogenesis has a very distinctive genetic signal, it was possible for me to test for that. So I was able to examine embryos that were part of this recent batch and also go back and examine some of the animals that had been born when Leo and Leone were still together. Now, Leo and Leone also had an offspring from quite some time ago named Lolly. You can see a bit of a pattern in the naming of uh, conventions from the aquarium. And Lolly was just approaching sexual maturity. She was in the tank with her mum and she was also laying eggs and some of her eggs had embryos in them too. And so uh, we went about testing for that. Dr. Dudgeon, can you go over what we know about parthenogenesis? What is happening on the biological level? Certainly. So we don't know the exact mechanism for these animals but we can infer what it is based on the genetic signal. So to explain it, when you have a male and a female reproducing, so sharks are very much like us in that they are genetically sex determined with X and Y chromosomes. And so when they reproduce, um, you know, you will get half of the DNA from mum, half of the DNA from dad. And whether you get uh, the X or Y chromosome from dad, determines whether you become a male or a female. So in sexual reproduction in gametogenesis, so the, the gametes are produced your your egg and your sperm. So dad produces the sperm, mum produces the egg. And those the egg and the sperm have essentially that randomly selected half of your genetic diversity. So whichever copy, so at each one of your genes or DNA you know, coding regions and, and the rest of your DNA, you have you have two copies, essentially. Cue that little anthropomorphic DNA character from Jurassic Park. In regular heterosexual reproduction, which is the more common form for these species, half of the DNA comes from the dad in the sperm and half comes from the DNA in the egg cell, and they combine to create an embryo. This is where they get some of their genetic diversity. Now, in the parthenogenetic offspring, the egg doesn't combine with the sperm. Instead, it combines with another copy of itself inside of the mum. And it's thought that during the process when that egg cell is, is formed, what's called gametogenesis, it essentially make the egg cell, which has got the DNA, that single copy DNA, and all of this other wonderful nutrient stuff, which is going to support the embryo. But during that process, these other cells are also produced called polar bodies. And they have, at least one of them has the same DNA complement that that egg cell has. And so it's thought that the egg cell combines with that polar body so that you then end up still with a diploid genetic signal in the baby. So they have two copies still of every gene, but those copies are identical to each other. From our perspective of screening for that DNA, we use a panel of 16, now 16, at the time I think 14 genetic DNA markers. And so when we look at those markers, 
in a sexually produced offspring, sometimes the two copies are the same, but most of the time they're different. And so we can see which one comes from mum and which one comes from dad if we screen those guys as well. Now, in the parthenogenetic offspring, they're always identical. And just to clarify, however, not every single individual is identical. They're not clones because what happens is that they get, you know, this, say, offspring A might get the first gene copy and offspring B might get the second gene copy. So the offspring, the parthenotes are not all identical to each other, but for each gene copy, the gene copies are identical at each one of those markers. And the other thing that's interesting as well is that because there's no male input into their DNA, they're always female. That's for this particular case where we have XY sex determination. Female sharks creating new female sharks that can create new female sharks, all without a male. But that begs the question, is there an evolutionary or survival benefit to parthenogenesis? That's a great question. Um, I would expect so. I have a bit of a theory about it, but it's very, very difficult to test. So when these animals have quite low genetic diversity, and there's not very many of them, the healthiest population for this particular species it exists here in Eastern Australia, and our estimates are a, a few thousand individuals. So they're, they're fairly rare animals, but they're quite migratory. So one of the theories of what is the adaptation is that perhaps what happens is that if you have animals migrate to a new location, they're colonizing a new area and no males turn up, this might be a way that they can reproduce and perpetuate essentially the egg cell, the genetic signal in the egg cell, through a generation until potential mates turn up. Remember that the offspring of parthenogenesis are not clones of their mother. They essentially have the genetic diversity of the egg cell of the mother, distinct and different, not clones. So that would make sense that this would be an evolutionary adaptation in that regard. However, we do think that they would need to sexually reproduce at some point to sort of help the, the population to, to keep going, to increase that genetic diversity within the individuals. And there are some studies that colleagues have been doing with animals in, in human care, again, that show that the survival in parthenotes is less than that of sexually produced offspring uh, overall, certainly in the first couple of years. And this is likely because when you have such greatly reduced genetic diversity in the individual, you don't have the redundancy in gene expression. So if there's a bad gene in there, it's going to be expressed. Parthenogenesis might be a bit of a waiting strategy, which may be something that helps explain how these animals have been around for millions of years and have survived even though they seem to have quite low genetic diversity overall and low population numbers. From an evolutionary strategy point of view, though, what's really interesting, so the first vertebrate animals that parthenogenesis was documented in were uh, poultry, so turkeys and, and chickens. And this is back in the 1950s, and uh, the scientist named Olson who was doing all this work. And birds are different to sharks in that they don't have XY sex determination, they have um, ZW. And so 
for us who are XY, when we have a double X chromosome, we make females. For the birds, when they have the double chromosome, they actually make males. So their ZW are the females. So in the case of these birds, when they reproduce parthenogenetically, they're actually making males. And to some extent, that makes more sense from an evolutionary perspective because you think, well, if you don't have any males, just make some. And then you've got some <laughs> that can reproduce in your in your population. But that's not what's happening with the with the sharks because they only make females. So this is this is what we think the evolutionary advantage may be to this strategy. Here is the big question. Do we think that the female makes a choice in parthenogenesis, or is it just kind of a surprise immaculate conception i suspect that parthenogenesis probably occurs more often than we know about but there's quite high mortality in those early stages so it it may be a case that if they reproduce that you know there still could be sperm competition and if they reproduce with multiple males that they would have uh, whichever has the strongest sperm gets to the the egg cells first so that would potentially override parthenogenesis. In the case of leopard sharks and, and most of the sharks and rays, the occurrences are from captive settings or the animals and human care. There's one species where it's been found in the wild, which is sawfish in Florida. And they were able to see that the animals that they genetically screened were parthenotes because of that distinctive genetic signal I was talking about previously of, of having the same gene copies or what we call homozygous at every at every gene. But I've screened a lot of these uh, leopard sharks in the wild and haven't found any animals that have a parthenogenetic signal in the wild. We haven't screened a lot of eggs yet or you know, embryos from eggs. That's more difficult. We're starting to do that more now. And so we don't really know how often it actually occurs in the wild. In human care, it seems to occur pretty regularly in that even in circumstances where you've got males and females in the same facility that have been observed mating, there can still be parthenotes produced. This is of particular interest to us because um, we have a sort of world first shark conservation program where we need to screen for parthenotes as part of what we're doing because we, we don't want to introduce them into the wild. Dr. Dudgeon, can you tell our listeners what the big takeaways are about this research, especially for you? I, I think one of the exciting things about this particular paper is it really it captivates you know, the imagination and the wonder of, of animals in the wild. I think particularly sharks and rays, there's so much about their reproductive biology we don't know. They have been around for a very long time and we are just really starting to understand how they've managed to do this. And that's also particularly important given this is the one of the most threatened group of vertebrates globally and so this work, one of the things that I would like to mention is, is that this work has also been quite important to our uh, shark conservation program called ReShark, which is basically a world first in replenishing depleted populations in the wild with animals that are bred in human care. 
And as, as part of this, uh, our first project, STAR, which is uh, based in Western Papua province in Eastern Indonesia, we have hatcheries. So we're working with aquariums all over the world who are breeding leopard sharks or zebra sharks in their facilities. And we're sending eggs to uh, Eastern Indonesia where they are hatched and raised in custom built hatcheries looked after by local uh, aquarists or shark nannies as we as we call them and then released back into the wild to replenish these depleted populations and understanding the reproduction in these animals is hugely important and also the implications for parthenogenesis which we need to screen for because we we don't know how overall it affects the survival rate for these animals. How much does it occur in the wild? Is this an ongoing strategy? Is it an accident? I uh, don't think so. But it's really one of the things that we need to take into account for this very applied shark conservation program. And there you have it. Leopard shark ladies don't need no man to make a baby. At least for a short period of time until they need to increase their genetic diversity. As always, more research needs to be done to understand the behaviors of these amazing animals that inhabit our oceans and how they get busy and reproduce. Thanks for having me along for this ride, folks. As always, it has been a blast. It is always a pleasure, Skylar. A big thanks to our guest, Dr. Dudgeon, and a big thanks to you, our audience. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends and network. Until next time, this has been Ocean, Ocean Science Radio. Radio. So one thing to point out is that uh, the names of these sharks are Leone and Leo. And like, it's cool because my daughter's name is Leona. And Aww. yeah, there's this like weird, cool kismet thing there happening. Oh, <laughs> a little tiny shark. Yeah, she's a baby shark. Do 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 do.